I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of The Washington Post. I'm Elizabeth Finchantilli. I write for The New York Times and The New Yorker. And I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of The Wall Street Journal. Welcome to episode 55 of Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. Well, um, welcome back, uh, podcast listeners. We're happy to be back with you during this uh, endless uh, pandemic shutdown. We're still writing and still covering aspects of the theater and trying to figure out when the hell we can all get back into uh, the regular mode of sitting in theaters and watching plays and musicals. Not quite yet, though. In the interim... Uh, we're going to bring you a really uh, wonderful panel of guests today who uh, later in the show are going to talk about what they're doing, artist activists, uh, to bring the public's attention to the urgent need for government relief for the arts. Uh, first, though, uh, we want to take note of the activities of the handful of American theater companies that have resumed live performances in the midst of the pandemic and how they're faring. And by the way, as I speak, uh, I am scheduled to see my first live performance since March 12th, uh, wow. tomorrow. I shall That's report. That's great. Yes, please. <laughs> it's outdoors and it's in Brooklyn. So... Uh, unless I get cold feet at the last second, uh, I am uh, scheduled to go. <laughs> Elizabeth, I'm going too. Kinsey, you are Kinsey. Yes. Yes. Are Wait, you at the uh, Are you at the five thirty or the eight? Five thirty. Me too. Oh my god. We'll hold hands. This is How awesome. Well, we're not meant to. We, we we're going to be in pods. I, well, we will see each other. I I was having the same doubts, but now that I know you're going, okay. I now, think now that I'm, I'm going to go. Going, but yeah, apparently we're going to be all masked, uh, right. actors and everybody will be masked and we'll be in pods. Yes. Well, it's the company's called um, the, the team. I've the seen team. their work before. It's uh, the artistic director is Rachel Chafkin. Yes, Rachel Chafkin. Right. So this is. Uh, I know of the director of uh, Natasha and Pierre in Hadestown. Right. Uh, and she's had that company for quite a while. She's not directing this herself, but she's the artistic director of the team. Right. Okay. I'm sorry. We got we got sidetracked. Very good company. Right. Yeah. Well, we also want to talk about uh, companies that are outside New York that have resumed performances and what's going on with them. I know of four on the East Coast: uh, Barrington Stage and the Berkshire Theater Group. Both received equity approval uh, to perform in public, but the state of Massachusetts has ordered them to limit their socially distanced outdoor audiences to a maximum of 50, which is really hitting their, their revenues hard. And Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey is giving outdoor performances of Light Fair using their non-equity actors. And finally, the American Shakespeare Center in Stanton, Virginia, is continuing to give non-equity performances right now. They're doing Twelfth Night and Othello, both of which will be streamed on video. So, Peter, you yeah. are close enough to Staunton. Uh, Stanton, how do you pronounce Stanton. Oh my God, this is going to come back to haunt me. Um, So have have you been there? Uh, Well, funny you should ask, Elizabeth (laughs) Vincentelli. I was on the verge of packing my bags to go to see their inaugural production outdoors of Twelfth Night. When, uh, and I live in New York City, so this was a complication. Governor uh, Andrew Cuomo uh, expanded the number of states 
that he has an advisory list that if you go there, you have to come back and quarantine for 14 days and take a COVID test. And, you know, it just suddenly occurred to me and I felt myself in the place of many uh, theater goers. Uh, am I what do I want to risk to be in a theater? And it yeah. suddenly I weighed the options and I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to wait until Virginia is off the New York list, which uh, even and this part of Virginia is not even uh, very covid heavy. It's a it's a fairly uh, it hasn't been affected deeply. But nevertheless, I'm trying to be as good a citizen as I possibly can when it comes to this uh, this horrible infernal disease. So I am any day now, if they take Virginia off the list, I'm there. In the meantime, as Terry mentioned, I'll be watching their streaming versions of Twelfth Night and Othello. So, so to if I get this right, none of us so far, am, am I right in this? None of us here has seen a live production? No, correct. No. Okay. No, the last one, the last show I saw was The Hot Wing King off Broadway. And that's when the uh, the curtain. Mine was six. Yeah. Well, I noticed. I noticed that the New York Times got their critics up to those Berkshire performances, and they they covered them. But Mm -hmm. I was struck by the fact that those reviews they seemed to be as much about how the critics felt about being in a live audience again, right, as they were about the performances themselves, which is perfectly understandable. Right. Right. Uh, I think we would all be overwhelmed in similar circumstances. I can I honestly I can't even imagine it. Was that a caveat uh, uh uh Terry was that like you saying, you know, does a critic really need to go if they're just sort of like reporting on the experience? I I, I you know, or do you feel is it is that a is a the, being compelled to write about that um does that diminish the value of a review just because you we all feel a little uh reluctant to take hold of these things, these productions, the way we might have before? Uh, I don't don't think so, Peter. I really don't. I mean, this is such an extraordinary, in every sense of that word, circumstance, that what it feels like to be in an audience again is central to the total experience of seeing the show. And I I don't blame my colleagues at all for having reported that way. To be sure, I'm sure. It would have been difficult for them to give it a pan. It would have been difficult for me to do that. I'm- but here's the question, the other part of that question. So let's just say, all right, uh, let's just say, in hypothetically, it isn't something that you would particularly wanted to have seen or after seeing it, seeing it, want other people to think they should go see. Um, are you, by writing about it in a positive vein at, and the, the joy of the experience, are you putting... Uh, this am I being crazy? Are you putting people at risk, you know, by suggesting that they go for the experience that you had when maybe we're not ready to be back in theaters? I'm just throwing that out as I, you know. I'm, I'm just asking. Point. Essentially, what you're wanting is a kind of cost-benefit analysis, right? Um, would I send somebody to see? a show that I doesn't that I don't think is very good, uh, either the show itself or the quality of the performance, just as a, a kind of form of boosterism. And in a way, you know, I deal with this all the time, covering regional theater. I mean, sure. I come, when I come to a company I don't know, I'm making that cost-benefit analysis. And I've been lucky. I've never gotten zapped. Well, once I did. Um, and I panned it. 
and I didn't go back. But uh, under these circumstances, I think it's legitimate to expect us all to, to be thoughtful about the way that we cover the experience. Honest, but tactful. Mm. I would be if the circumstance presents itself. But I sure do think that, that the feeling of being in an audience is something that's an important part of reporting on. On the other hand, I'm really, the thing that I have wondered about right from the beginning of our talking about um, social distancing is what is it going to feel like to sit in a socially distanced audience of 50, 75, 100 people and watch a comedy or a musical, something where collective response, where the, the, the vibe that you all get is, is crucial to what happens. I mean, are, are you going to be able to feel that under those circumstances? Right. I'm really curious about that. Right. I look at photographs of these, these seat layouts, and I think, is that going to be any fun? Are, yeah. are we going to? It just, you know, part of being on Broadway is that you're all in there in a fairly contained space and excitement becomes contagious and it ripples across the, 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 the orchestra. And uh, I wonder if it can happen in a socially distanced auditorium. I mean, it's such a kind of confused, I mean, you know, it's funny that I brought up that show that I'm seeing tomorrow and I'm, I'm, I, part of me really wants to go and part of me, there's the tiny part that says, well, and I'm sure they're taking all the precautions necessary. I mean, they really seem to be doing everything. And I, But at this point, it's almost beyond rational. You know, there's, and I think that's one of, that's going to be a huge obstacle for producers who wants to go back. It's this fact that we're, a lot of us are really scared. Yes. Um, and... It, it it's not necessarily, you know, you can look at the contamination rate and blah, 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 1% is so small, but I, I, I don't know. Um, and, I, and I really want to go and I want to see it and I want to encourage it. And then I'm, part of me is thinking, well, maybe we can just wait like three more months, try to hold on three more months. So we we're like not 70% sure, but like 99% sure, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's a complete state of confusion at this point. Mm. Um I'll tell you something else. I don't just cover theater. And one of the things I've been writing about for the Wall Street Journal is concert hall redesigns that are intended to take the pandemic into account. There is one theater that I know about that's doing the same thing. It's the Wilma in Philadelphia, an important regional theater. And their plan is really interesting. They perform in a 296-seat proscenium stage, conventional auditorium. What they want to do, and I've seen the blueprints for this, is to build a two-tier, 100-seat theater in the round, a temporary structure that would be placed on their existing stage. And all of the members of the audience would sit in separate boxes, each of them holding two people. And it looks to me like they're going to get the best of both worlds with this. And I haven't heard about anybody else thinking about anything like this at all. Have you guys? No. No, I have not. Well, you know, it's funny. I saw that blueprint too. And, and when I saw it, my, my first thought was, oh my God, this is like a panopticon. 
Yeah, I thought that too. Yeah. It was uh, just a kind of uh, great, but kind of scary at the same time. <laughs> but yeah, no, I have not heard of anything to that extent. That is a radical move for the company. I'm, it, I'm a big fan of the Wilma. They do great work and they also have a great theater. Yes. It's a beautiful space and it's a, the stage is big enough to make this happen. And I don't see why other theaters, regional theaters, New York theaters, aren't putting this kind of thinking into how can we create a performance environment where people will feel safe. I, I've said that before, but I, I'm just really still, <laughs> I feel like a broken record. I, I say this at every episode, like w what are the New York institutions doing? There's so little being done that I'm hearing well, about. Act, like, are you guys hearing of anything? Well, I'm working on a story. There is actually some stuff going on that I uh, you'll have to read the Washington Post for uh, coming soon. But I will say, you know, the problem, Terry, is not from what I'm my reporting is showing. It's not so much uh, recreating the space for um, for audiences. It's making the spaces, the performance spaces safe for actors and performers and backstage people. That is the huge concern that's really become because they're going in every day and until there is a safe test a turnaround test that can be given to performers every day to people who are uh, the, the arts workers uh, that we're going to talk about soon every day there's not going to be a widespread amount of performance because you can't you can't quarantine actors you can't live in a bubble that's the other thing that's happening, by the way, is bubbles are create, being created. There's a performance of a play uh, in uh, London that I'm going to be watching. It's for a, a musical called Romantics Anonymous, where the company is in a bubble. They're going to be performing on stage in live performance. But that is just not a realistic way for a theater to continue. You can't have people just living with the people, the other people in the, th in the theater company. It just isn't practical. Well, it, it is what Stanton is doing, the American Shakespeare. Correct. Show. And but it, they that's have an unusual right. set of circumstances that makes that possible. Exactly. Geographically and cult and in terms of the economic uh, uh, dependency of those actors on the one company to, uh, going forward always. So that's really going to be the sticking point. It's not, That's why you're not seeing a lot of companies even thinking about how to reconfigure their stages because it's really about health and safety of the – that comes first. Anyway. I, uh, I, I, I think – you know, it's interesting the the things we're talking about. There's a lot of anxiety, and 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 our guests today are in a great position to talk about it on a really on a really big scale. Uh, uh, in normal times, uh, actors have no problem being heard, and it's usually part of the job. But right now, with theater immobilized across the country, the voices of performers and other arts workers are being lost in the cacophony of competing groups that are also hurting and seeking help. Well, that, Elizabeth, is where Brooke Ishibashi, Jenny Macholm, and Carson Elrod have stepped in. Uh, they are three actors, very accomplished ones, who looked around and very recently saw a need for a concerted effort by the performing arts community to organize and speak up about the huge role their peers play in the economy and therefore advocate for government relief on a large scale. Uh, they're with us today as the leaders of the group they formed called Be an Arts Hero. Brooke, Jenny, Carson, welcome. Tell us, what specifically was it that energized you and made you want to do this? Uh, this is Brooke. I'll, I'll, I'll kick that off. So we 
you know, all three of us are artists first, and we're also activists and organizers. And as the pandemic hit and our nation started shutting down earlier this spring, we looked around and we were just waiting for someone to come save us. We were looking for the infantry, the battalions, the troops, and and we were hoping and sitting and waiting and, and no one showed up. Uh, so we realized that we had to take it on ourselves to advocate for ourselves. We also realized that there was an area of opportunity within our industry, within the arts and culture sector, that to, to lobby everyone together. You know, there, there seemed, it seemed as though there was not a unifying force. We needed a collective effort to bring together the arts workers, you know, the blue collar, boots on the ground arts workers side, you know, shoulder to shoulder with the celebrity power, shoulder to shoulder with the institutional power uh, within the arts and culture sector. And that that seemed to, to, that that didn't exist. And so we, we looked at each other and we said, well, let's, let's do it ourselves. And so it's, we're, we're a kitchen table movement of sorts. And we've only really been in existence for, for about a month and a half now. And our efforts have really taken off. And I think it, it speaks to the fact that there is a need, there is a, a gap in our nation for an effort like this. You know, our, our efforts, uh, individually are diluted if we're all, you know, lobbying for ourselves, right? Actors Equity Association is asking for four billion. You know, we as being arts hero are lobbying for the entire arts and culture sector, which is not just the performing arts industries. It's museums. It's, you know, pu- publications, et cetera, et cetera. And we're asking for 43.85 billion in relief for the entire arts and culture sector. So that's how th- th- those were our humble origins and why we saw the need for this effort. Well, tell me this. Were you surprised that there was no initial government response? Were you expecting one? This is Carson, and I would like to speak to that. I think that, you know, in March, as the curtain came down, uh, we all thought we were going on a two or three week intermission, right? And so, and that's kind of the way everybody was treating it. So as COVID spread and things stayed closed and, and, our city locked down and we watched the rest of the country locked down. Um, we were like, okay, we're, we're on hold. We're on pause. And then a couple weeks in, we saw the Cirque du Soleil go bankrupt. And then a couple days later, we saw the upright citizens brigade theater close in Chicago. We saw improv Olympic close. Then we saw CAA, uh, which is one of the, the, fanciest, um, most powerful talent agencies in the world fire 95 agents and lay off 275 staffers. We saw HBO lay off 800 people. And we started to, to think to ourselves, okay, surely someone is in D.C. advocating on behalf of our sector. We're $877 billion in value added to the economy. Uh, we're 4.5% of GDP. We add more value to the economy than agriculture, tourism, transportation. So we thought surely someone in D.C. is advocating for us. And we started to do deep dives into research on the CARES Act, the HEROES Act, et cetera. So like looking at the CARES Act and seeing 10 airlines get $50 billion worth of relief from the CARES Act, um, we thought, okay, we add $265 billion more to the economy every year than all of transportation combined. So surely the arts and culture sector is going to get similar relief. So then in the CARES Act, we see there was 50 or $60 million. In the HEROES Act, it looks like there's a little bit more than $100 million, which is essentially a, a Band-Aid for a gunshot wound. We are part of the economy, 
And right now, there is something wrong with the American conversation about the arts economy, because if there was something right, if, if the correct conversation was happening, we would be uh, treated as part of the economy and given the same relief that other sectors that are in this existential uh, crisis moment um, are getting. And so that's where we are stepping in, is we are uh, getting on the phone, we're activating our community, we want all 5.1 million people uh, who are arts workers to uh, stand together, sing the same song in unison, aim the song towards the United States Capitol, and we really need all 100 senators to hear it and immediately put a floor underneath us. Is part of the problem, Jenny, the perception that arts, the arts is an elitist pursuit and that it represents somehow there's this idea that it's the 1%, it's for the 1% by the 1%. I mean, I, I have heard from people in the field who are lobbying that, you know, that Broadway, for example, is not a great word to use in Washington for that very reason. Is that part of what you have to uh, get through to people that when you talk, as you did, about arts workers and even artists, for God's sakes, you know, the vast majority do not even make a living practically at this. Um, how, you know, it, it, it strikes me as such a fundamental education effort that you have to sort of start at the ground level with. Right. So um, there's many parts to this. It, the first one I like to ask is, so which one are we? Are we starving artists? Or are we co coastal elites? Which right. one is it? Right. Are we, are we starving uh, money holes or are right. we fancy dancy <laughs> celebs that live in our, our millionaire mansions? Which one is it? Um, and the truth is neither or both, right? Um, which is that we are 5.1 million American workers. Um, so this, a lot of our, uh, workforce is union labor. Um, so when we talk about arts workers, what we realize that half of our battle is about reframing the conversation and um, erasing bias. I think that um, there's a misunderstanding um, about what arts work is. So um, part of that has to do with uh, the misunderstanding of what it takes to uh, run an arts and culture organization. Um, you know, people might be um, have a knee-jerk reaction to the term Broadway, but let's use Broadway as an example. Um, we know Broadway actors, and, and that when we think of Broadway, we think of the performers, right? But within a Broadway show, there are, there is stagehands, costumers, wig, props, ushers, um, state, did I say stage managers, arts administrators, janitorial staff, and, and, and countless ancillary jobs that, that, um, are necessary in order to put that handful of actors on stage. So, um, when we're, and so we are advocating for all of those arts workers. That's why it's important that we, we we've started thinking about this conversation and thinking about the language we use. And part of the, the way that we're trying to rephrase this conversation is, in, is pivot away from using the term artists, because I think that people think of just those actors on a stage, right? Instead, we're using the term arts workers, because that encapsulates the whole of uh, the holistic nature of our ecosystem, right? I think that's very shrewd of you. 
Thank well, you. I I, uh, I was curious in terms of the definition of, of let's say, your constituency. Uh, when you say arts workers, do you mean like performing arts workers or people who also work, for instance, on TV shows? Like what, uh, well, what's, what's in, who's included? Yes. Um, the performing art, artists are a portion of our sector, but that is by far not all of our sector. Right. Okay. So, so within that, we're talking about arts workers, um, constituting, uh, costume shops. We have an allyship with the CIC, the costume, um, industry coalition, um, with wig makers, with set and design, with the, the music industry, with TV and film. Um, you'd be surprised at the list. I would love to invite you to look at the Brookings Institute report. Um, in which they list all of its, it is overwhelming to see what is included in our sector. Um, and it's, it, it's a tremendous loss when you really think about all who are in danger right now. Um, and so I, I think it's easy to erase and dismiss the sufferings of what we think of artists, because we think of artists, there's a lo- inherent bias about what artists are, but it's much harder to dismiss the idea of arts workers. And it's much harder to dismiss the idea that librarians are included in this. And, um, you know, uh, set designers, uh, rank and file union members are included in this. And these are people who do blue collar jobs um, that are included in this list of arts workers. So um, we are looking to to answer your question. It's inclusive of performing artists, but it is not it, that is not only and it is just a portion of our sector that is represented by performing artists. I, I saw the other end of this from the inside a few years ago. I did a term on the National Council for the Arts when Dan Joy was the chairman of the NEA. And one of the things we found out is that there were a very considerable number of congressmen who didn't care, weren't listening, and couldn't be persuaded. Some of them were just totally indifferent to art, but others didn't see what you were doing for them in, uh, you know, district 47 in South Dakota. And, uh, that, you know, they thought it was all in New York and Chicago and Los Angeles and that it had nothing to do with them. And that was the great battle that we fought. I, I want to speak to that because one of the things that we've been doing, uh, from day one is we've been talking about the fact that arts are big business all across the country. And, Terry, you bring up a really good point. Nothing is going to work if we don't know how to speak the language of legislators. So our entire mission is to do just that. So the National Assembly of States Arts Agencies um, has compiled a map where you can go, you can hover your cursor over any state in the union. And whether it's Alaska, Arkansas, West Virginia, Kansas, California, or New York, there is not one state in the union that doesn't employ tens of thousands of arts and culture workers where arts and culture is not a significant part of that state's GSP and where the arts and culture doesn't contribute billions with a B to Mm. that state's economy. So whether you're in, you know, Texas or Illinois, arts are big business and we are jobs multipliers. We impact hospitality, transportation, uh, hotels, restaurants, bars. Richard Florida says, if you want to know where an economic hotspot is going to be, look for where the arts are. And so 
um, more and more what we are trying to do, and we are taking meetings with senators now, and our pitch just right out of the gate is arts are big business. Arts are a huge part of the economy. Arts are a huge part of your state's economy. And since we are in this horrible moment of economic cataclysm, arts and culture has a growth rate of 4.16%, which is nearly double that of the regular economy, which is 2.22%. So our pitch to senators is, hey, if you want an American economic recovery and a robust and fast recovery, then invest in the arts because we will give you more bang for your buck. We are everywhere. We're in all 50 states and we are the cornerstone of a great American economic recovery. Brooke? Yeah, I would like to speak to that too, Terry. A note that we, as, as we discuss how we like to speak, Senator, you know, we realize that the, 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 the save the humanities argument is lost on some folks, right? That we can't just argue that what the arts give, give back to us spiritually, emotionally, artistically, you know, that's an argument that we all understand, but that most senators do not understand and it equates to nothing, right? So, we like to talk about local jobs, local economies, because that I think is incredibly relevant and meaningful to our Republican friends on the Hill. You know, we, we talk often about uh, meccas like Oregon Shakespeare Festival. So I was lucky enough to work for them the entire entirety of last year. And I it was it was not lost on me that. Oregon Shakespeare Festival is not only incredibly vital and crucial to the to to the overall health of the city of Ashland, it's the entirety of Southern Oregon. You know, a 40 plus million dollar institution that employs thousands and thousands of arts workers in in the city of Ashland. You know, you got to think about their effect on tourism, transportation, hospitality, right? And that resounds throughout the entirety of Southern Oregon. So, we're not just talking the arts workers who are employed in within our Oregon Shakespeare Festival itself. We're talking about the surrounding city of Ashland and how that city is only able to survive when the tourism comes in for OSF. So even in their fire, even throughout their fire seasons the last couple of years, that city of Ashland was incredibly devastated. So now compound that with this COVID epidemic, and we talk about how everything's been shut down and they won't be able to return until well into next year. You know, we we're thinking about all these local jobs within Southern Oregon, and that's gas station attendants, hotel workers, clerks, uh, restaurant workers. Think about all of the thousands of local jobs that may not be seemingly related to OSF, but they are. So we need to think about the domino effect of if a titan like OSF goes down, if we let OSF fail, how does that affect thousands of local jobs with people who are not arts workers, but people whose livelihoods are directly affected by OSF sinking or swimming. Jenny, you want to say something? Yeah, I I, I just want to, first of all, um, thank Brooke for that, because uh, that is an important point and uh, give you a fun little statistic, which is 68% of tourism is cultural. So I had no idea of that. Yeah. And, and those who travel for cult, arts and cultural institutions spend twice as much as the, uh, as other tourists. So, um, when we talk about reliant sectors of the economy and when we talk about, um, being too big to fail, of which we 
thoroughly believe that arts and culture is too big to fail. You know, we're not just talking about our own collapse. We're talking about the collapse of the tourism industry. We're talking about the the hospitality industry, travel, uh, bars, restaurants. Those um, sectors are heavily reliant on our success. But here's a game I really want to play because you mentioned North Dakota, right? So while we were talking, I brought up my my two maps, right? My my NASA, the other NASA um, a map that has all 50 states plus the District of Columbia on it. And I brought up my Brookings Institute report, right? So you name a state right now, and I will tell you how many, um, how much of the GSP is arts and culture, how much, uh, and how many jobs are arts and culture? Kansas. Kansas. All right. Kansas has 46,316 arts and culture jobs. It has a total value added of 4,370,000,000 and let me just say 4.3 billion. We'll just round. Okay? 4.3 billion. Now, if I go to my Brookings Institute and I scroll down to Kansas. This is I'm I just want to try and and put this in relief for you. Um Hold, please. My computer is slow because we are on Skype. <laughs> While you're bringing that up, Dana Joy's long-term goal at the NEA was to get NEA funds and NEA projects in every congressional district in America. He, it was systematic, and he went over. He went at it over a six-year period, and he knew that that was the way to get people on board who might otherwise just, you know, not care. That's very smart. So um, the numbers of jobs at risk right now in Kansas um, projected to be lost in arts and culture is 19,332. Okay. So if we go back to to that map, um, we're looking at Kansas's numbers again um, being a 46,000. So we're looking at some percentage rate. I can pull it up. It's in the next one. Um, we're, we're looking at a cataclysmic, uh, a, a job loss of, right. within, uh, Kansas. So it, this is consistent within every single state. I know when we think of arts and culture, we think of LA and we think of New York, but the truth is actually far more complex than that and far more nuanced. Um, and the impact is far more complex than that. Um, you know, this Brookings report that we keep on referencing, um, when, when they account for who it's going to impact more, the South, Mm. the South is the region that's going to be affected the most by job loss and proportionate to their income. Um, they are going to be the most heavily impacted. Now, if we're looking at just wide numbers, then of course, you know, like simply because New York and LA are, are hugely profitable, um, you know, they are the top ones that are going to net loss the most amount of money. But third on that list is Texas. So let's just think about when when we think about the arts and culture sector, it's so important to remember that this is this involves all 50 states plus the District of Columbia and all are impacted. And the devastation is indescribable to these economies. So so uh, how do you the, the, the three of you explain the fact that for a sector with such a huge economic impact and, and weight, it seems so 
uh, I, I don't know. Powerless. It's so ineffectual at lobbying, I guess, because other industries that are n- not as impactful seem to play that game very, very well. And mm. and we seem to be just like, what? I, I, I don't <laughs> understand. Like, what? why do you think that is? Like, what? why is that? Like that... I, I guess it comes down to lobbying, not, no? I mean, or is that like a really important part? But it's not all, but it's really a huge part of it. I want to go back to what Brooke said at the beginning of our conversation. Like when we talk about airlines, okay, we all know airlines and a lobbyist from the airlines can go to Congress and be like, these 10 airlines need $50 billion. When we're talking about arts and culture, we're talking about a for-profit sector, a non-profit sector. We're talking about museums. We're talking about Broadway theaters. We're talking about um, arts um, therapy programs for vets. It is such an enormous, dynamic, and nuanced sector that is really hard to get a unified voice out in front of it. And the more that we have done research and and look, there are such amazing organizations out there. And I just want to give a shout out to Americans for the Arts. I want to give a shout out to every single arts agency and arts alliance in all 50 states. And I want to compliment them and commend them and thank them for all of the advocacy that they do. But one of the things that we realized is we needed a unified grassroots movement to get real loud, real quick, to get our our most um, famous faces as lo- as well as you know uh, people who work the concessions in the front of a lobby to stand together in this moment and say we're all part of this um, dynamic and nuanced sector together. One of the problems is, and one of the reasons that the this sector is not as organized is because those other those other uh, uh, industries are heavily regulated. They have a they have absolute uh, relationships with certain agencies, not the NEA, obviously a very small agency, but they have myriad problems every year dealing day to day with promulgated uh, changes in their rules. They need they need high paid people. We are all looking at Jenny's cat uh, on Skype by. The way, so that's why yes. you'll hear little giggles on here. Um, but that's a that's part of the reason that we don't have a a a, a presence a a presence a high powered, highly paid presence that's constantly watching over what's going on in this emergency situation. There are some highly paid lobbyists that are being brought on to to, to look at specific issues for Broadway, for example. But that's like you know that's once in a generation kind of contr- uh, issues. My other question is, and I'm asking this of Jenny Carson and Brooke, do you think is part of the problem also that the constituent sort of power of arts workers is not readily, the information is not readily available? For example, are there surveys of how many Democrats, Republicans, and independents there are uh, among arts workers to show that there is a multiplicity of interests and that, you know, Republican congressmen have their own interests in mind because there are, everyone is not you know, just on the left side of the political spectrum in the arts. It may be, you know, the most visible parts are, but down the line, I dare say you'll find a lot of moderates and even some conservatives. Well, I, think you know, I think it's a really good question. And I think that what what we're trying to do is, you know, when we're speaking to people uh, in places that are traditionally conservative, you know, we're making an assumption that this, uh, I think there's also a stereotype about the arts that it's partisan. 
And uh, one of the things that we're finding is no matter who we talk to, everybody loves the arts. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, um, it's been Netflix that's been getting us all through it. It's been, um, you know, novels and we all turn on Spotify. Right, and and right. when we show the data to the senators, it, the data doesn't lie. The data is the data. Brooke, you wanted to get I in. I want to pass the mic to Brooke. Yeah, thank you. I, I was going to speak to much of what Carson said, but at the end of the day, you know, numbers are nonpartisan. So what we're trying to impart on on our our Senate sen senator friends is, you know, this is this is about local jobs. This is about our contribution to the economy at large, and. If if they let us fail, you know, this this economic devastation will be felt by their constituents and it will be um, unrecoverable to a certain extent. So so when it comes down to, you know, uh, partisanship, yada, yada, you know, I think it's very clear. It's when we are able to argue this this uh, economic impact, you know, as Carson said, the numbers do speak for themselves. And I think, you know, from that point, we have, we're talking to allies. We're not trying to win people over to this argument at this point. We're talking to, uh, to allies. And, and it's the, it's the idea that let us help us help you, Senator friends, because we want that their constituents to be alive and in their homes and with jobs to return to. That's the heart of what we're about. You know, something so, that scares me to death. Every actor I know is out of work. And a very high number of them are thinking of exiting the profession. They just do not see a future for themselves anymore. And I'm talking about some of the most talented stage actors I know. And that frightens me. That really frightens me. I mean, not just short term for how do they pay the rent and put food on the table. But what does it leave us with when we are past this? I, I, I want to speak directly to that. Uh, a friend of mine I spoke to on the phone two weeks ago, um, a 52-year-old woman of color, one of the most amazing actors I know. And on the phone call, when, when we talked, she said she was packing up her apartment. She was putting things in storage. Her, uh, she was just let go by her agency because her agency closed. So the agency closed, and she was moving back to Utah, to move in with her parents. And uh, oh. she was going to sublet her apartment for the remainder of the lease. And she said, Carson, I'm leaving the city. I'm going back to Utah. I'm a 52-year-old woman. And my career has been ended in three months' time. I don't know if or when I will be able to come back. And we, um, we know people who are uh, contemplating suicide, uh, who have committed suicide, um, we are very conscious all day, every day, um, that while we put on a, a, a strong, happy economic um, message, that below the economic message is a human toll. And so everything that we're trying to do is to keep arts workers alive in their homes and with jobs to come back to when this is all over. Because if we don't, we are looking at not just the implosion of arts organizations, but the loss of lives and um, the loss of livelihoods and in incalculable la loss of um, artistic output for our country. 
So what do you want our listeners to do? What is it you want, be an arts hero? What are you, what can they, they're listening to you, their hearts are breaking. What, what can they do? How can they help? How can they be heroes? First and foremost, contact your senators. Everything we're doing is, is to provide a direct line of communication to, uh, to our senators. I think at this point, Congress, they are the only ones who can help solve this problem. They're the only ones who can come to the rescue in this moment. You know, as Carson elucidated, if we do not receive federal relief, by October 1st, we're looking at 40 million Americans who may be evicted from their homes. So a current population of 567,000 homeless Americans, that will skyrocket 7,000%, an increase of 7,000% in less than a month and a half's time if we do not receive federal relief. What everyday citizens who are listening to this podcast can do this minute is they can call, write, tweet, tag their senators to let them know that this massive relief is needed now, that this extension of federal pandemic unemployment compensation needs to happen now because it's been three weeks past now since it's disappeared into thin air that we need 100% COBRA subsidies. These asks need to be first and for in the front of everyone's minds right now. And we need to be very loud in these asks. And, and along, along with that, you know, with the possibility of a change of an administration in the coming months, I mm. think we also need to remind our listeners that we have an opportunity to make our demands very clear to hopefully a new administration. And that means, you know, we have allies on Biden's Arts Council. There is immense promise in communicating what our needs are to an uh, to an established Arts Council that's in the works in this at this moment to convey our demands to them in this moment now. You know, we were we also had a call with a meeting with the senator who was able to communicate with us. You know, we arts advocacy groups should be communicating their strong opinions about who should be in the top leadership positions within the NEA, NEH, CPB, etc. The fact that these we as advocacy groups should be weighing in on, on those conversations. You know, that's not, that's not necessarily something that occurred to me before we had this conversation with the senator's office. So I, I would like to impart on anyone who's listening that we have immense power as citizens, especially with this upcoming election, but most importantly, with our senators returning from vacation, uh, come Labor Day, we have an, an, an immense opportunity to impart on them the urgency and the need for this massive relief now. Jenny? Do you have on your site a model letter that people yes. could use? Okay, that's important. So, so this We're going to give out the URL. So so this is this is why I uh, what I actually wanted to speak to you. We understand that um we're asking for attention and advocacy in the midst of of, of a social um, uprising, a social justice uprising in the midst of a global pandemic. People's attention is split between essential survival and and the other causes that matter very much right now. So within that, we've decided um, to make it as easy as possible to for anyone who wants to support. Um, so if you go to um, beanartshero.com, we have a um, a database of all the senators, their their contact information, their emails, their social media handles, how many followers they have, and their phone numbers. We also have a model script for them. You don't even have to use your own words if you're phone shy. We always we always encourage you to use your own words, but 
If you are phone shy, we have a script for you. It's also included on the website. We have a pre-populated email. It's an action network email that you can, that's also available on the website. If you just go to the get involved button, there is a, I am an individual and that it lays out every single way you can be involved. And we've made it with so simple with as few clicks as possible so that you can be as involved as you need to be. Terry, I, I, you know, I, it occurs to me that you might have a lot of listeners who are administrators inside of arts institutions. And one of the things that we're really trying to do is harness the uh, individual power of people with a big platform and the institutional power uh, of organizations that have email lists, that have social media presences that have their own web pages. So at bnrtero.com, we have a link to an action packet. And that action packet is a list of actions that an individual or an institution can take to amplify this message, to uh, get their audience involved. Because we're hoping that any arts organization, whether it's the High Plains Museum in Santa Fe or the Dance Theater of Harlem, will use their email list to reach out to their audience and say, you uh, have an opportunity to help and this is how you can help. And it all goes back to what Brooke is saying. And this is Brooke. I also would like to add, you know, for concrete ways that our listeners can get involved this moment, because I do realize people want a tangible way to act, right? We have a day of action coming up on September 7th on Monday, Labor Day. So it's about two weeks from now. And if they keep in touch with us uh, via our website, we will be announcing a series of events. We will have live protests in all 50 states. Uh, we have a lot of very exciting ways people can be involved and directly engaged in this effort to make some to to make some loud noise. You know, so, I think this may be the most important interview uh, that we've done. Uh, Thank you, Terry. Terry. Terry, I just, Terry, I just want you to know that I, I see you and, and um, I hear you. And it's, it's interesting, right? Because you're a reviewer and I'm an actor and I don't think there's too many opportunities for these constituencies to see each other. And I just want to say that I see you, buddy. And we're all in this together. We're all part of this community together. And, and we're all going to work as hard as we can to, to see ourselves through this. And, yeah. and thank you. Elizabeth, you wanted to say? Um, I, I, uh, I just wanted to ask if, uh, because we've talked a lot about just the, the art sector in general, do you guys have some specific initiatives since we're a theater podcast? Do you have any spe specific initiatives you, you can talk a bit in terms of what would affect the theater community more specifically, or is it just kind of part of a general effort, which is fine too. I'm just, you know, wondering in terms of our listeners, uh, are you working with specific theater institutions? Are there any theater specific initiatives or, or elements that you're working on? Well, we love it when uh, theaters reach out and get in touch with us. We've been in, uh, Brooks been in touch with the Geffen and they've been a great partner of primary stages. We, we've had a lot of institutions uh, amplify the message, put us on the splash page of their um, websites, share our information on uh, social media. But our, our um, you know, our $48.35 billion ask is for the arts and culture universe. Right. And we, uh, uh, the three of us come from the theater. And was, so, of course, the theater's survival is an existential uh, requirement for Jenny Brooke and I to continue to live our lives. 
Right. I just want to um, just very quickly, this is Jenny, um, say that on our website, we, we have get involved for individuals, but right next to individuals is for institutions. And that is and it gives directives on exactly how institutions, arts and culture institutions can get involved. And um, if they stay tuned, uh, we will have really direct, very specific asks for them specifically within our day of action. So um, check that out. Brooke, you want to um, Yeah, I was going to say, do you want to spell it? It's it's spelled out B and artshero.com, correct? Sure. And for for anyone who's lazy, it looks like beanartshero.com. <laughs> well, li- listen, Brooke, You won't be able to unsee it now. Uh, Brooke, Carson, Jenny, um you're doing, you know, what is exciting and and inspiring work. Um your artists who are taking it upon yourselves to tell the rest of us what we need to do. And we greatly, greatly appreciate what you're doing and you spending time talking about it with us. So, so thank you all. Um, and, and, and it's about time finally that we're trying to get this together because I mean, you're right. It's unbelievable that we basically don't get the respect that we owed. Yeah. You know, in a country where money talks, it's just bizarre. It's really bizarre. Right. Thank well, you. Yeah. Found, I think you've all found the right way to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And that's the key. Thanks again. Now let's turn to our usual show closing segment, a quick survey of what we've seen lately that's worthy of bringing to your attention. And Peter, I gather you want to talk about something you saw and wrote about last week that is not theater in the conventional sense of the term. Yes, that's exactly right, Terry Teachout. I am going to talk about something that is not <laughs> theater in the conventional sense of the word. Uh, so occasionally, I do write about uh, uh, other aspects of theatricality in our culture, mostly when it uh, dovetails with uh, politics and the performative acts, aspects of that. And this week, or last week, uh, I watched the Democratic National Convention, and and because it was virtual and Produced essentially as a program rather than as a convention, it seemed to me worthwhile to be assessing how they did as uh, the values of show business might uh, pertain. And I found actually much more enjoyment in watching a a produced version of a quote-unquote convention uh, surprisingly, when you take away the delegates and the uh, uh, and the state signs and all the frou-frou, it's a more enjoyable way to experience the messaging of a political party. Uh, they were beautifully produced films uh, interspersed with very compelling speeches, short, uh, to the point, uh, for the most part, fluidly uh, produced. There were some glitches during the week. But I thought that, in fact, that the Wednesday night production hosted by Kerry Washington, an actress, was the best night of of political television I've ever seen, just because the confluence of issues and personalities and emotion that they managed to orchestrate over the two hours of primetime viewing was very affecting, very powerful and culminating in a speech by the first uh, woman of color to uh, run for vice president. So um, I I actually wrote a column saying that, you know, the, the this convention should be considered for an Emmy Award. It was that compelling for me. 
I love the roll call. Can I just say that yes. the roll call, roll call was, was so good? Right. Uh, it was absolutely amazing. And I teared up several times during that roll call. And as everybody else, I love Rhode Island, you know, the Calamari comeback state. It was just fantastic. It was just that, that roll call alone. I sent the link to so many friends in Europe. And I was like, okay, come on. This is all is not lost. I, I felt it. Right. I felt it was very um, hopeful in, you know, the original sense of the word hopeful. Uh, I, I, I absolutely loved it. They have Eurovision. We have the roll call. I was going to say, am I right that the same person who produced this is the one who's going to produce the Tony Awards? Yes, that's right. His name is Ricky Kirshner. Well, there you are. Yeah. <laughs> and also also produced the Kennedy Center Honors. So, yes, there was a, a sense of showmanship about it. Uh, yeah, yeah. And absolutely right. Absolutely right, Terry. Well, Elizabeth, what have you seen lately that stood out from the rest? I I saw something that was really good online, uh, and it was not uh, done specifically for online. I don't think it was a recording, I believe, from last year uh, of a stage of a live production, and it's an adaptation of uh, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness hmm. that many people know as the Coppola movie Apocalypse Now, but this is based on the original novella. And it's by a British company called Imitating the Dog. And it's part of the uh, Edinburgh Festival Fringe, which has a lot of stuff online for free this year. And Heart of Darkness, I highly recommend. It's available until August 28th for free. Hmm. Uh, and the way they're doing it uh, is that now uh, Marlowe, who's the, the character in the book, goes to you know goes up the river to look for Kurtz. So here, Marlowe is a black female uh, private investigator from Kinshasa, goes to look for Kurtz, who's now some very cryptic villain who lives in Europe. Because in this alternate reality, Europe is the dark continent. Ooh. It imagines oh, yeah, a kind of, it's great. It imagines a kind of alternate reality where the war there was no there were no winners or losers after World War II. So oh, wow. Europe is it is in kind of like constant battle and there's camps everywhere uh, and it's a mess so she's really afraid to go from safe Kinshasa to the dark continent of Europe it's really inspired and the company is called imitating the dog yes imitating the dog this special it's very multimedia okay so as if this weren't enough they add another layer by having a kind of meta deconstruction where they interrupt the story where the actors break the fourth wall and explain why they made those decisions. Oh, this is this. Uh, why I, they, could right. not do, they could not do a, a kind of straightforward adaptation of. They started off as trying to do it, you know, straightforwardly, and they were like, "We can't do this." So they kind of analyze, like, okay, so if Marlo is not a white guy, like. Maybe, you know, anyway, so they analyze every decision and there's arguments and, and then they go back into the, the story, which is very spooky and very, the thriller uh, aspect of it is very, very compelling. It's very incredibly well done. And there's just five of them and two cameras. So there's a lot of that, you know, live green screen action right mm -hmm. uh, happening, but it's incredibly well done. And the way it's filmed is also really well done. It's incredibly uh, it, it's such a great argument for a capture. What's the What's the website? It's zoofestival.co.uk. Uh, uh, or if you go to the uh, Edinburgh Festival French, you'll you'll get the link to. Okay, there's great. a lot of shows online, but of the one that I've seen, that one was cool. Really, it's about an um, hour and forty five minutes, and it's cool. It's it's 
I highly recommend it. That's fantastic. I'm very curious. What What about you, Terry? I know you're covering a lot of uh, theater webcasts for the journal these days. Well, for the last few weeks, uh, I've been watching uh, every Friday. PBS is is repeating great performance telecasts, uh, and they're and they're making them available after that as webcasts. Uh, I think I talked about Present Laughter the last time we got together. But since then, I've seen uh, Kenny Leon's uh, production of Much Ado About Nothing, which was the Shakespeare in the Park show, and uh, the Lincoln Center Theater King and I. I wasn't able to see uh, Much Ado About Nothing at Shakespeare in the Park. I was uh, otherwise occupied. And it just knocked me flat. I really admire Kenny Leon. He's one of these directors who disappears in the show and he doesn't have a personal house style. Uh, And he just brings something fresh to everything he does. And this is, it was done, it's a modern dress production with an all black cast. And it was the best much ado about nothing I ever saw. Wow. I was enthralled by it. And it came through completely as a piece of small scale viewing. Uh, you know, audience audible, uh, real sense of the physical space, um, the problems that people have with these telecasts, it just didn't apply. And the same thing of true was, was the same thing was true of The King and I, which of course was the 2015 uh, Lincoln Center Theater uh, Broadway production uh, with Kelly O'Hara and Ken Watanabe. Uh, here, as if you saw it you'll, in the house, you'll remember there's one effect that couldn't possibly have come across on television, which is that when the curtain goes up, you see the ship on which uh, Anna is being brought to Siam. Uh, it, it comes five rows out beyond the lip of the stage. And every, when I saw that, people were just gasping. Uh, and, of course, you're not going to get that in a, small, in a small screen presentation. But what you do get is... Uh, Barton sure did really close detail work with the actors, including every one of those kids. And you can connect completely with their performances. And you can also, this really surprised me, they used the original Robert Russell Bennett orchestrations for a 28-piece orchestra. Sounded great in the house. But when I listened to them on earphones here, it was, I, I was blown out of the seat. Um, mm. So those, those have been, I know a lot of people are saying, a lot of people don't believe that theater webcasts can, of live performances can convey a sense of occasion. And you just have to look at these to know that that is not true. Mm. It's not the same as being in the house. It's something else. But it's something of real validity and something that can give real pleasure. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, you've been very consistent about this argumentary, and I have to say that you've opened my uh, mind a bit to, to the, the the value. And certainly, as the production values of of the presentations get better, uh, uh, there's a little more um, there's a little more uh, 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 artistic. Um, uh, Elon, I'd say in the in the choices they're making, which is good, and uh, and with much ado, I thought Danielle Brooks was fantastic. Uh, I loved her in uh, Color Purple. Oh, Color Purple. She plays Beatrice in in Much Ado. She was Sophia in the Color Purple in the Cynthia Revo Color Purple, and and she was you know a standout there too. So uh, uh, I, I in star quality coming yeah. out of every yep, pore. Indeed. 
Well, uh, we, as you know, as we demonstrate each time, we can talk and talk and talk. Oh, are we just reached a five-hour mark? Is that... No, we're... Like... no, don't my, tell the people that, Elizabeth. My ears are Elizabeth. sweating under the headphones. No. Like, I'm, I know I'm sharing too much right now, but God, it's hot. No, I, what we're supposed to say is, woo, <laughs> the time just flew today, didn't it, folks? That too, uh, that too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it really so, did. So, yeah. But as always, uh, we hope uh, you've enjoyed being with us, but it's time to put this episode in the can. I'm Peter Marks. I'm Terry Teachout. And I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. Our producer is Erica Huang. You can follow us on Twitter at Three on the Isle, spelled out, and write to us with questions because we love the mailbag. Uh, write to Three on the Isle at gmail.com. And both the Twitter and Gmail addresses are spelled out. Please let us know what other topics you'd like to hear on future episodes, because we actually do read the mail, too. Yes, we do. And and and, and we always say this, but I don't even know these things still exist. Uh, don't forget to leave a review or a rating on iTunes or Google Play. Do, does, do they still do that? Yeah, you, oh, they okay. do, and you should look at some of the comments, because Aye. I have. Uh-oh. Are they bad? Well, you know, not, not everybody loves me. <laughs> oh. I love you, Elizabeth. And as do I. Yeah, there you go. Uh, So please leave a a favorable review for Elizabeth, especially on iTunes or Google Play or whatever platform you listen to. And thanks for listening. We will be with you again soon on the virtual aisle.